following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. We want to get into the Word now, Luke chapter 12. The passage that we want to look at starts in verse 13 and goes all the way up to verse 34. But for the scripture reading, I want to just focus on chapter 12, verse 13 to 21. And then we'll continue to read the rest of the passage as we go on. And it reads, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. The things you have prepared, whose will they be? So So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. Let's pray. Lord, as we turn now to the ministry of your word and of your spirit, We open ourselves to that ministry. And whatever needs to be said, whatever needs to be stirred, whatever needs to be shaken within any of our lives, we pray that we would have a humble and submissive spirit to that work in this moment. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The subject of this passage for this morning is money. And more specifically, the drive to accumulate more and more wealth in our lives. And I've said this before in past messages, but in America, personal finances is just one of those taboo topics that you just don't talk about openly with others. Um, Talking about money is like talking about politics or religion. It's one of those third rail topics in American culture. I mean, you just don't bring it up unless you want to make someone uncomfortable or pick a fight with someone. I was reminded of this fact when we went to Kenya one of the Kenyans was seeing some, something that I had and just asked very casually, oh, that's really neat. Uh, how much did you pay for it? And I was really caught off guard. Uh, and it, I was scrambling to figure out how to answer him without actually telling him how much I paid for it. And I realized the reason why that question caught me so off guard and made me feel so uncomfortable is because generally in America, nobody asks you how much you paid for anything, do they? Uh, not unless you're pretty close friends. Uh, wow, that's a really nice sweater that you have on. How much did it cost? Or, wow, your new house is beautiful. What did you pay for it? You know? I mean, this is not the kind of stuff that you say to somebody in polite company. And yet, throughout the Bible, we see this topic of money come up over and over again. God never shies away from addressing the issue of greed and materialism. Uh, In the past also, I've mentioned that greed is one of those sins that does not, in all honesty, tend to evoke much guilt in any of us. 
And as I said, I, I, I think um, the reason is because we all sort of grade ourselves on a curve, don't we, when it comes to greed and materialism. And the truth is, we all tend to hang out with people that are roughly in the same socioeconomic status as we are. And so when we're all in the same boat, then hey, we're all the same. What's the big deal? None of us is particularly different than the other. And the truth is, we all know wealthier, more materialistic people than ourselves who dress in more expensive clothing or drive nicer cars or have bigger houses. And so the truth is, none of us feel all that convicted about passages like the one we're looking at this morning that's confronting the issue of greed. But the Bible makes this very revealing uh, testimony of the countless men and women who have basically ruined their lives because of the love of money. Achan, who couldn't resist the temptation to steal from the spoils of war, and because of that choice, would ultimately end up costing him his life and the life of his family. Tempted by the great wealth, offer of great wealth, the prophet Balaam foolishly went against God's commandment and actually attempted to curse God's own people. Again, a choice that would cost him his own life. Delilah's love of money, when she was offered an outrageous sum of money, betrayed her love, Samson, cutting his hair. And her betrayal would cost not only Samson's life, but the life of thousands of other people who died because of Delilah's sin. Even one of Jesus' own disciples, Judas Iscariot, betrayed Jesus for what we're told in Scripture is 30 pieces of silver, which was roughly the equivalent of about a half-year salary. And his betrayal would contribute to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And lastly, in the church age, even Ananias and Sapphira, who claimed to be followers of Jesus Christ, but whose love of money ultimately caused them to lie to God, saying that they had given 100% of the proceeds of the sale of this land that they had sold, when secretly they kept some. So as a result of lying to the Holy Spirit, their greed and deception ended up costing them their lives. Stories like this that fill the pages of Scripture ought to give us pause before we so casually dismiss this issue of the love of money and the effect that it could have even in our own hearts. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24 says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, I know that many of you are familiar with these words, but I want to argue that I think for many of us, we struggle to agree with them. Because I think for most of us, we say, I don't know why it has to be painted so black and white like this. Like it's such a stark choice between God or money. I mean, I think the two can actually coexist pretty comfortably in my life. And I don't really see much problem there. But we need to really take to heart these warnings that the scriptures are filled with. In essence, I think Jesus is claiming one of the defining choices that we face in life is between God and money. Sure, there are other idolatries that we can face 
in life. But what the Bible seems to suggest is that the love of money is going to be one of the most difficult, most enduring challenges that all of us are going to face as followers of Jesus Christ. Well, our story this morning begins with an anonymous man who's not named. He approaches Jesus with this interesting request in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. This man appears to be in some kind of dispute with his brother who is refusing to give him his rightful claim to their father's inheritance. And the truth is his complaint may very well be legitimate. He may very well be due a significant sum of money that his brother refuses to give him. But it's interesting that Jesus doesn't even choose to go there. He refuses to address the legitimacy of his complaint. Instead, Jesus replies in verses 14 to 15, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. It's interesting the way that Jesus replied to the guy. He calls him man, which is kind of almost a rude, very impersonal address for a person. It's sort of like saying, hey, dude, you know, uh, why are you dragging me into your family problems? And then he turns and he addresses the crowd that has witnessed this exchange, and he talks about this issue of greed. And in other words, I think what Jesus is saying is this. You think that your biggest problem is injustice for money that is due you but is being denied you. But that's not your biggest problem. The bigger problem that I see from my perspective is not the injustice but the greed that underlies your demand and the hunger that you have for more and more. That word covetousness in verse 15 is interesting. It literally means the desire to accumulate material possessions well beyond what you actually need in your life. And I think that's what Jesus was doing, pointing the finger at this guy. You want this inheritance, but ultimately what you're craving is for more and more and more that you really don't even need. And then Jesus, as he does so often, illustrates this warning with a parable in verses 16 to 19. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. You see, the story begins with a man who has a problem. It's a good problem, but it's still a problem. His fields have produced a bumper crop. And now he has so much that he doesn't know what to do with it all. It's an outrageous surplus that he's gained. And so not even his existing barns are large enough to store it all. And so in order to preserve as much wealth as he possibly can, he hatches this plan to tear down all of his barns and build much larger ones so that he will save as much of it as possible. Once this project is done, the man comes to realize that he will be financially secure for years and that he will finally be able to relax and enjoy the benefits of everything that he has worked so hard to achieve. Now, 
is it just me or do some of you feel a little bit uncomfortable with the implications of what Jesus is saying here? What's so worrisome to me about this parable is how closely it parallels the American dream of a comfortable retirement. That's really the gospel in America, isn't it? Work hard. Save all you can. And one day, you'll be able to retire and live off the interest income of your retirement savings. And the question is, what's wrong with doing this? I mean, is it wrong for a Christian to put aside some money from their paycheck each month toward an IRA and to save for retirement? I'm guessing that probably the majority of us here in this room have at least a 401k that we've got through our places of employment. And maybe you've been socking away money each month toward that. Is Jesus saying that that's wrong? That that's sinful? Now, at the end of the message, I want to say a few specific things about the issue of retirement, but let's just hold that intention right now, and let's continue with the way the story unfolds as Jesus tells it. Because Jesus reveals the problem with this man's approach to life and his investments. Verse 20, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared Whose will they be? Now, I want to say this. I know this is Jesus, the Son of God, telling this story. But I don't know. It's hard for me not to feel a little bit like Jesus is playing dirty here. Like he's hitting below the belt. This is a very unfair twist in the plot, isn't it? It's sort of like the way I feel about it when Jesus tells this story is like this. Well, okay. If you're going to go kill him off like that, then, of course, the guy looks pretty stupid. Um, But it feels a little like a cheap shot, doesn't it? (laughs) I mean, how was the guy supposed to know that he was going to die so unexpectedly like that? Um, But the point of the man's death is revealed in the next verse, verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. In other words, the death of this man reveals that his life was actually really meaningless from an eternal perspective. You see, ultimately, the biggest problem with this man's plans was that he didn't understand the purpose of the wealth that he had been given. He thought that it was all for his enjoyment. And so his entire focus when he found the problem of too much wealth was what could I possibly do to ensure that I retain as much of it as possible so that I could live a comfortable retirement? Throughout the parable, you see him use these words over and over again. I, me, I will say to myself, I will tell my soul. You see, he is utterly self-absorbed and self-serving. God never enters the picture once. I think what Jesus is saying is that God gives us material goods so that by investing in them, we can become rich toward God. In other words, he's saying that you can convert temporary wealth into treasures that will last for eternity. 
And if your investment strategy does not account for the eternal, then in God's eyes, you're a fool. You're a fool. In other words, what Jesus' view is that we should not accumulate more than we need, but use our abundance for God's work. The principle is affirmed in the words that follow in verses 22 to 23. And he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about what your, your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. You see, Jesus is acknowledging that we do need these things like shelter and food and clothing. These are necessities of life. We do need them. But the danger is this, that in trying to secure these things for your life, they can begin to so consume you that that becomes your ultimate goal in life. That this is all you're living for is the accumulation of material possessions. And he's saying, when that happens, you've missed out on the whole point of your life. When all you're doing is trying to upgrade to the next house, buy the next better car, buying a wardrobe filled with the best clothing, and on and on and on, and saying, when you start to get sucked into that life, you've forgotten the whole point of life, of why God gave you life. It would be like going on a weekend business trip to another city, And missing out on all of the business meetings because you are obsessed to make your hotel room as as comfortable as possible. I mean, can you imagine someone doing that? Going to Ikea and decking the place out and skipping out on all the meetings because you want to be as comfortable as possible for those three days that you're going to be there in that town? That's in essence what Jesus is saying. This world is not your home, and there is an eternal perspective. But some of you are consumed by the things of this world as if this is the final stop in your journey. You see, we need food. But food has become much more than a matter of survival in America, hasn't it? We've created an entire culture obsessed with that next great bite of food that's going to go into my mouth so that we could blog about it and that we could put it on Pinterest, and we can put it on Instagram and share it to the world, that amazing experience. Yes, we need shelter. Everybody needs shelter. But our hunger for that dream house goes so much beyond shelter, doesn't it? Clothing is essential, but we spend outrageous amounts of money to look good and gain status by the things we wear. You know, one of the things I love about being in Africa is nobody cares what label is on your clothes, you know. Nobody looks at that, and as well as many other places in the world. So why is that so important in America? You know, I usually don't even notice stuff like this, but after coming back from Africa and now as the weather is getting colder, I've been noticing that guys tend to wear different coats this winter, you know, Um, and... Uh, and I was looking and going, oh, the fashion has changed again, you know? And I, whenever that happens, I always feel like this. Does everyone get a memo that I'm not a part of or something like that? Like, how does everyone seem to know when the fashion changes? And then everyone is out there getting that next thing about what you're supposed to wear this winter. And so then I start looking at my coat, and I go, oh, gee, do I need a new coat? You see, this is life in America, isn't it? 
And Jesus points out, life is more than these things. This is not the purpose of life. These were only things that were intended to get you to the next day. Don't obsess over them. Don't worship these things. Don't make these things the ultimate objectives of your life. Verses 24 to 31, Jesus goes on and says, Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow, is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be, nor be worried, for the, all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. You see, what God promises is, I am going to take care of you, just like I take care of the birds of the air, the flowers of the field. Now notice that the promise that he makes is not to make every one of your dreams come true, like the health and wealth gospel lies to us about. And I think in seeing this promise of God, I think one of the applications for us is that we must learn to distinguish between our needs and our wants. Because I think it's precisely this confusion that so often makes us feel betrayed by God and feel that he has abandoned us. It's because often we don't even know what we really need in life. And so we demand things that God had never promised us. But he says, listen, if you have food on the table, shelter over your head, and clothes on your back, realize that that is enough for you and that God will take care of you to that extent. Being in Kenya for these last several weeks it really stirred a lot of memories for me about what our life was like. And since 2009, being back in America and how much even our own family culture has changed living in America once again. You know, in those days when we lived in Kenya, uh, I loved our holidays and birthdays because weeks before they would arise, uh, we didn't have stores that we could go to to even buy anything. And so the way that we would gift, all the kids gifted one another was to basically take the arts and crafts and construction paper and stuff, and they would make little art projects and give it to each other. And so this was Christmas 2005 in Kenya. You know, so I don't even know what the stuff is. It's some beadwork and stuff like that. And we're like, oh, thank you. You made a bracelet for me. You know, we, Luke at that time was totally into Star Wars. I couldn't buy him any action figures, so I printed out a bunch of Star Wars figures. <laughs> And he put them on a baking sheet. And for weeks, the guy was entertained, making these action figures fight with one another like that. This was my 36th birthday that I spent in Africa. And you can just see, these are just all just things made out of construction paper. And yet, even to this day, these are the gifts that I cherish the most because they were handmade with love by my children. In those days. Now they just go to the mall and buy me something for my birthday. 
But although actually they, they made me a really nice craft last year. But uh, that's why I got to be careful about making a comment like that. But, but again, I think it's saying this. What do you really need in life? What do you need in life? Because this world has sucked us into a lie to say that our happiness is dependent on accruing more and more possessions in life. But what God promises is, I will take care of you. It's also a matter of trust. When we think of these words of insurance from Jesus, it becomes clear that the ability to be freed of the love of money ultimately comes from trust in God. When we trust God to take care of us, we are freed to be generous with our possessions. In fact, this is probably the most important message of this entire passage, is that we are deeply loved and valued by God. And as a result of that love, He is going to care for us. And the degree to which we believe that truth is the degree to which we can be freed of the need to accrue material possessions. You know, I'll say this. When I was in my 20s and 30s, I think my materialism centered largely around my hunger for the next toy that I wanted in life, whether it was an electronic gadget or a computer or a car or something like that. But as I am in my 40s now, and some of you are older in your 50s and 60s, one of the things I realized is that it's not about getting those toys anymore. It's about the promise of security that money offers. That's really what the love of money is about. It's like this. If I can just pay off my home before I retire, then no matter what happens, at least I know I'm never going to be out on the street. It's if I can just pay off these credit card debts, then these creditors won't be hounding me when I'm living off of Social Security. You see, and this is where the issue of trust becomes so important. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That is the bedrock promise that can free us from the love of money. God is going to take care of me so that I don't have to make that the defining struggle of my life to fight for financial security because he has promised that he is going to take care of me. The last truth that I want to point out, and I'll end with this, is this. Giving sacrificially of our possessions puts our hope in heaven where it belongs. Giving sacrificially of our possessions puts our hope in heaven where it belongs. The passage closes with these words. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I want to say this. It's really tricky to judge another person's materialism, isn't it? It's hard, especially based on my own standards. Anytime you start to go into that exercise, you run into a problem, and it is this, that the truth is all of us splurge on some things and are really miserly in other things. We pinch pennies for some things 
and not others. And so when I come into my dialogue with you, with my biases, very easy for me to judge you based on the things that I don't struggle with, but that you may. You know, uh, winter's here again, and my family hates it because in order to save money, I make our house like an icebox, okay? The way that I set my thermostat, um, my my kids go crazy. Can we please turn off the heat a couple more degrees in here? Um, but I am the thermostat master. You know, no one touches it without my permission. Because I don't know why it's in me. I am obsessed about keeping heating costs low in our house. But I'll be very forthright with you. On the other side of it, I do tend to splurge when it comes to electronic devices. You know, to have the latest, greatest, and to go for the slightly upgraded technology, you know? So here's the problem. I can go to your house in the dead of winter and find that it has this utterly unbiblically toasty 76 degrees. (laughs) And I can judge you for that. All the while, you're staring at me in judgment as I answer the phone call that's come to me on my new iPhone 6 Plus while you're still using your Motorola StarTac that you got in the 90s. You know what I'm saying? Um, Actually, I don't have a 6 Plus yet. (laughs) Um, So the question is this. How do we discern? How do we make any sense of this? You know, it's like, then you end up at a place where you go, well, just live and let live. Just leave everyone alone. Don't get in anyone's face. I don't think that's the answer. I think actually the solution that the Bible gives us, that Jesus gives us, is this. Maybe it may be very hard to go and think about any single purchase and whether to judge someone for that and say, how dare you if you're a follower of Christ. But I think what Jesus says is this. Look at your giving. Look at your giving. At the end of the day, when you've paid all your bills, what have you given to the work of God? And I think that will ultimately reveal whether love of money is a problem for you. As he says right here, sell your possessions and give to the needy. This is one of the most practical expressions of what Jesus is talking about here. Meaning this, if at the end of the day, after you've paid all your bills, paid your mortgage, and what you find yourself is month after month, never having anything to give to those who are more needy than you, then the truth is probably you love money a lot more than you care to admit. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. And what Jesus is saying is this. As that's happening, that's a part of discipleship. Because as you are giving your wealth instead of accruing it, your heart is more and more longing for that place where your treasure is. You are teaching yourself to put your hope in heaven and not in the things of this world. And I'm telling you this, brothers and sisters, every one of us in this room is in one of these trajectories or the other. Either as you get to each new decade in your life, you are longing more and more for your heavenly home. Or you are more and more getting desperately worried that you're about to die soon. Because all of your treasure is in this life. And to lose it feels like losing the world to you. And I want to ask you in a moment of honesty, 
Which road are you on? You know, it's interesting to me that if you look at the healthcare statistics, between a quarter to a third of every healthcare dollar spent in America goes to what is known as end of life care. This means just before a person dies, it's the extraordinary and heroic measures that we take to save that life. Now, listen. I understand that this is a very complex economic situation there, and there are many reasons for this. But I want to tell you this: that I think one undeniable reason why almost a third of our healthcare dollars are spent in the final moments of life is because, frankly, we are terrified of death, and we can't think about it's the greatest horror for us to die, which is not what the Bible teaches us, because in our death. If we are followers of Christ, it is only the entryway to our true home, heaven. And I wonder in each of our hearts whether that hope is real or not. As you get older and older, are you fighting off the aging process with every bit of your strength, or are you investing and socking away your treasures in heaven so that by the time that you reach your elderly age? All you're thinking is, I wish I could get home to my father. Let me just close with this. Probably the family that we grew closest with in our time in Kenya are Bill and Laura Rhodes, uh, who are working there in Capsuar. They've been there since 1998, for the last 16 years. They've raised their family there. This is actually their youngest child, Jude. Who incidentally was a kicker on the Notre Dame team when they played for the national championship a couple years ago? Um, Bill is a plastic surgeon, and I need you to understand the kind of wealth that this man could have if he lived in America. Last time I came to Kenya in 2012, before this trip, he asked me to stop by and take pictures of this car for him. So, as a friend, I did him a favor, and it was this—I kid you not—it was this 1950s VW Beetle. Okay, so I was like, I didn't even know why I'm doing this, but I was taking pictures, interior, exterior, and I brought it back to him in Capsuar. The thing looked like it belonged in a World War II museum, and you know, he's like, "I go, why do you want pictures of this car?" He goes, "I'm thinking about buying it." I was like, "Why in the world would you want to buy a car like this?" It's It's going to fall apart the first day you drive on these Capsuar roads, and it's just that's where their income level was at that time. Is to buy a car like that. When when the roads come back to the U.S. for furlough, they drive in a 1960s VW van, okay. And when they're traveling to visit their kids across the country, because they don't want to pay for hotels, you know what they do? They actually park their 60s van. In emergency department parking lots, and sleep there in the van, because they never kick you out of those parking lots because <laughs> they're open 24/7. Um, when I look at the roads and families like this, it just blesses me so much. And I want to say, we look at a family like this and we think they're really strange, right? How odd of them. But I think it just reveals to us what an upside-down world we live in, isn't it? Of this being the strange life, and the normal life being 
paying four to five times more than you actually need to for a pair of jeans because of the label that's on them. And all of the things that we do to demonstrate a love of money that none of us are really willing to own up to. And I pray to God that there will be a real wrestling in every one of our hearts with this. Now, as I said at the beginning, I want to say just a few words on retirement. I, it's not that I don't believe we ought to save for retirement, okay? I think there is a certain level of financial responsibility and good stewardship in saving for retirement. But I want to say that the current picture of retirement, of having such an enormous nest egg by the time that you retire, that pretty much you can just totally live off the interest income for the next 30 years of your life or something like that. I really struggle with that because you run the numbers and you tell me if you could do that and give generously and sacrificially to the needy as Christ describes it. That prevailing model of retirement doesn't factor in the kingdom of God, does it? So yes, I believe if you want to make that the sole focus of your life, you can do that. You can accomplish that. But I don't think you could accomplish that and accomplish the agenda of God in your life at the same time. So I do encourage you to save. I'm not about saying try to survive on Social Security alone. Frankly, I don't even think Social Security is going to be there for me by the time I retire at 65. I think there is a responsibility and a wisdom in saving toward retirement. But I just want to challenge you that if that comes at the sacrifice of generous giving to those in need, as God describes it, then the truth is, I think we're in the wrong. Let us pray. As we close out our time, I just want to invite you to a a moment of reflection about this issue of the love of money and the accumulation of material possessions. Because like I said at the beginning, I, I feel like one of the challenges as a preacher talking about money is just to convince people that you need to hear this message. I think for most of us, we feel like, all right, well, you know, I'm not super rich. And it's not like I'm buying houses left and right and going crazy or anything. So I don't really feel like this applies to me. But I'm going to guess that there are quite a few of us here, even in ICC, that at the end of the day, after paying all the bills, we're just trying to keep our head above water and saying, hey, man, I'm actually one of the needy ones. I don't have anything left to give. I want to challenge you that we live in the wealthiest country in the world. And that was a very strongly reminded to me when I went to Kenya a few weeks ago and saw how much people struggle there to make ends meet and seeing how good we have it here in America. And what Christ says is this, the way that you're going to become a generous giver is by having faith and trust in me. Trust that I care about you, and that I'm going to take care of your needs. And Christ says, life is so much more than food and clothing and shelter. You do need these things. You need them. But understand that my promise to you is that I will take care of those needs for you. But what I ask of you on your end is to learn how to be generous and recognize the whole reason why I have given you the ability to earn wealth. It is that you might take that wealth and invest it in my kingdom. My sincere hope is that as each of us enters into the future decades of our life, that all of us will have placed our investments in the things of God, 
so that as we get to the twilight of our years, our singular desire is to be with God in heaven. But I really worry that that's not the direction some of us may be in, on. Some of us may be putting all of our hopes in this life, in our dream home, in our dream family, in the American dream, and all the things that we think are going to make us happy. And as a result of pursuing that dream, you have nothing left to invest in the things of God. Maybe through the work of the Spirit today, He is convicting you to say maybe you need to take a whole fresh perspective on your approach to life. My fear is that God may look to us someday and say, don't you know your life is going to be required of you this day? And is there anything more terrifying than if God were to make an assessment of our life and say, you fool, you fool, you live for all the wrong things in this life. You thought that life was about all those material possessions, but it's not. It was about my kingdom. Can I just invite you to pray and just ask God, saying, Lord, when I see the struggle for the love of money in my heart, what I really realize is what's needed is more faith, to simply just trust in you that you do have my back, that you're going to care for me, that you love me, and help me to rest in the security of that, and out of that be released, freed, to be generous with the things that you entrusted to me. Let's just pray that for a few minutes as our worship team comes to lead us in a time of response.